Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is over Zechariah chapter 14, entitled The Day of the Lord. So we're in the book of Zechariah, and we're going to finish up Zechariah. I hope you brought your seatbelts with you because it's going to be a rough ride because Zechariah 14 is one of the roughest of the whole book. And the whole book is tough, and, uh, but the Zechariah 14 is really rough. Sort of PG-13, maybe 16 in several places here, so just a warning. And, you know, God doesn't hold to pull any punches. He just says it like it is. And this is one of these places where he says it like it is. And it's sort of, uh, it, it just make, makes it rough, like I said. Uh, the, 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 the basic thing of Zechariah, let's be reminded, is a sweep of Israel's history. From the time of Zechariah, which is roughly 480 years before Jesus. That's, 480 years is a long time. And you consider we're only in a country, what, two and a half? Two, 250? Well, how, how have we been around here? 260? How long is this country? And so they just have an interval. They have a... They have halftime, basically, for 400 years between Old and New Testament. They just have a halftime that's older than our whole country. So to say that these are ancient people is an understatement for sure. 480 years before Jesus, Zechariah writes and predicts the things that he does, and then it takes us on a sweep all the way from Israel's sister from that time all the way through to today, and all the way to what, I'm, what I refer to as the establishment of the Jewish superstate, which the Bible predicts explicitly and over and over and over again. That there's going to be a Jewish superstate. The reason why I'm calling it a Jew, Jewish superstate is because it's going to be ruled by a Jewish king. And he possesses forever the title of the Jewish king. We know it as Messiah. You think that's very Jewish. That's not American. It's not president. It's not premier. It's not, uh, I don't know, king uh, from the, or Pharaoh or anything like that. It is the title of a Jewish king. You know him as Jesus. He is a Jew. He was a Jew, he died as a Jew, he resurrected as a Jew, he ascended into heaven bodily, physically, as a Jew. Today there is a Jew sitting on the throne of God. I don't know if you've ever dealt with that, but you really need to deal with that. That Jew is coming back. He's going to reign. He's not just the king of the Jews, he's the king of the world and the whole universe. He's going to be reigning in a Jewish super state from the city of Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews. Not just, in, uh, say, a Jewish super state. There's going to be all kinds of people. Jews are going to be probably a minority as they are today. But uh, there's going to be all kinds of people. But nonetheless, the king over them all, of course, is, is a Jew. We know his name is Jesus, right, don't we? Sorry about the, the air is a little warm in here because that whole side air conditioner is dead. So if y'all are warm over there and you're going to be, that's a cement wall. You can move over here. And um, just if you could just breathe less, maybe we can just <laughs> half the time you were planning on breathing, then it could be less than just, I don't know, it, you know, air conditioners don't quit in the cool weather. They quit in the warm weather. So anyway, so the faster you listen, the faster we'll be done and the sweat will be less. So hopefully. So it takes us, Zechariah takes us from a human dominated world to the end of human history. Human history is going to end. That is, not in the sense that humans are going to end. Humans are going to exist forever, but human history is going to end as we currently know it. And it's going to be ended with the intervention of God, a physical intervention. God is going to return to earth in the form of his son physically to rule. And he's going to be changing the way we know things. Human history is going to end. I mean, human history in the sense of our influence, our corruption, our decisions, our way, our destruction of things. That is going to end. And it's going to be his way. Have you never prayed? Maybe you didn't pay attention to Jesus, but he says, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. Zechariah 14 is telling you the, the details of that. It's coming. 
You've been praying those prayers. He, doesn't, he answers prayers. If Jesus taught you to pray this prayer, don't you think he's probably going to answer that prayer? I'm thinking, yeah. So chapter 14 highlights the culmination of all that. Human efforts and directives and corruption ended with God's direct intervention. And just a word here about interpretation. I know some of you church members are sick of me saying this because I know I'm sick of it. Um, but this is a place, Zechariah is a place in general, and this chapter in particular is a place where our desire is going to be to interpret it some weird way. What I mean by that is something other than literal. This can't be literal. There can't be a literal intervention of God in which people are killed by the scores and uh, geography is altered and a one world government ruled by a Jewish king. It can't be literal. It's got to be something figurative. And I would say, well, let me just first of all say you're welcome to believe whatever you want to. And here's how I know that you're welcome to do it, because no matter what I tell you, you're going to do it anyway, right? I know that. I don't, I don't tell I'm not. We're not about telling people how to think here. I'm just simply saying from the state of precedent in the scriptures, if you want to stick to the scriptures, and I've done a, a ton of study, you don't have to trust my, t- my study ne- necessarily, but I would say go and knock yourself out and see if you come with a different conclusion. The, the precedent of scripture is that these prophecies are answered literally. It's just simple precedent. I mean, if, you're, if you're trying to guess about something future and how it's going to be fulfilled, it's based upon what scripture says. Your best answer, listen, is literal. Because we have precedent. We talked about it last time that I was here, which was two weeks ago. Chapter 11 of Zechariah. Same prophet. We're not looking somewhere in the book. The same prophet predicted very detailed things about Jesus' first coming. Predicted that he would be rejected by the Jews. They would reject his shepherd, their shepherd. They would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. It's all in the book of Zechariah. That that, that money would be thrown into the temple and ultimately hand up, wound up in the hands of a potter. Exactly like what happened in the time of Christ 480 years later. It was all literal. That's precedent. So when we come to a place like Zechariah 14 that has not yet been fulfilled, and we start asking the question, is this literal, is it not? We go back to precedent. Precedent says, yep. You might not like, you're not going to like, probably some of this. It's probably outside of maybe what you want God, what you think God is. But you're going to have to adjust when we come up against the scriptures and what I, my opinion differs from what the scriptures actually says, what should change? Me or it? If you have a whole lot of high opinion about what's running around between your ears, then you tend to change the scriptures. And I would just say, shame, shame on you for that. <laughs> you're going to regret that. Uh, but if you'll let the scriptures change you, you're going to be far happier. And it's just, again, my personal experience, what the scripture teaches... And so just a word about interpretation is that, you know, even though our desire is to take it non-literal, we can't do that. Again, it's not just the precedent of Scripture, it's also of, of Zechariah, it's the precedent of all Scripture. I mean, so God leads his people through the Red Sea. How did he part that Red Sea? Did he literally do that? Yeah. Say you don't believe it, that you're fine with that. But it, it literally happened. Did he actually stop the waters of the Jordan River so they could cross on dry land? Yeah, it literally happened that way. Can't be literal, right? Oh, yeah. It definitely was. Or, or, or how about the incarnation? That God became a man? That can't be literal. It's got to be something figurative. Well, guess what, guys? It's literal. That he died, that he resurrected, that, that, that he ascended into heaven within a 40-day period. It's literal. Say you don't believe it. That's okay, because here's, here's what happens. That's your prerogative. It's not okay, but it is your prerogative. It nonetheless was, was literal. Our temptation is to read chapter 14 and a lot of other places and say it's not literal. And we, we immediately ask the question, and I'm going to give you this question because I want to rule it out from your question asking when it comes to Scripture. I just want you to rule this out. 
Here's the question we ask. How? How is a bad question. How did he part the Red Sea? How did he create the earth in six consecutive 24-hour days? How did he stop the Jordan River? How did God become a man? How did he do that through a virgin? How did he resurrect on the third day and ascend into heaven? How, guys, is a dumb question. I'm not calling you dumb. I'm just saying it is dumb. That's dumb. The reason why it's dumb is because what you're trying to do is how assumes that there's a natural explanation for supernatural stuff. And there isn't. And there never will be. Never. Because supernatural means above natural. So if I take natural and try to apply it to supernatural, again, like I said, um, you've lost the logic question there. You've lost it. It's the same, if you want the natural to explain the supernatural, it's, you'll, do, you'll be just as lucky of trying to breathe in deeply and suck all the oxygen out of the universe. Try it. You can knock yourself out. Some people think, if you think that you can do that, then I guess you could probably explain the natural, the supernatural with the natural. But otherwise, the how question, how could this be literal, like I said, is a, is a, it's a foolish assumption that somehow the supernatural can be explained with the natural. It cannot. It's over and above it. Again, say you don't believe it. That's your prerogative. But nonetheless, you can't say that it doesn't say it. So here we are, ready for talking about this prophecy here in Zechariah 14. But before we get into what's yet to be future prophecy, we need to look back to the past of what actually has happened. We've already considered some of that. But, but let's consider something else just, just so that we're up to speed with where, where things are. So Israel rejected their Messiah, didn't they? AD 33, they crucified him. Four days before they rejected him, Jesus rides into Jerusalem and weeps over it, saying, If you had only known this day, what could bring you peace? But now it will be far from you. Behold, your house is left, left to you desolate. 38 years later, what happens? Five Roman legions march in from the north. Two more come in from ships. Two more, not Roman legions, but mercenaries come in. You got roughly 110,000 trained Roman troops that sweep through Israel and kill just about everything there. What they don't kill, they take into captivity. 1.5 million Jews died in the process of just a very few, not, not just a very few days, relatively speaking. That's AD 70. They obliterate the whole country. They wipe out the city. They, within 100 years, they come back to Jerusalem and they plow the entire Temple Mount, sow it with salt, build a temple to Jupiter, the, the god, of the same as Zeus uh, in the Greek mythology, Jupiter is. A, a temple to Zeus over the spot of the Holy of Holies. They renamed the whole city uh, pal and, and the whole country. They renamed it Palestine. Where did it come Palestine? Why do they call it Palestine today? Because they did it as a slam against the Jews. Palestine is the, is the, is the um, what do they spoke Latin? There you go. Is, a Lat is the Latin word for Philistine. So they declared it the land of the Philistines as opposed to the land of Israel. They did everything they could to eradicate the Jews from that land. They were very successful at it. The Jews were basically out of that country for all the, more, the better part of 2,000 years up until when? March 14, 1948. Some of us were alive then. The Jewish state was declared David Ben-Gurion, right, under great duress, under tremendous odds. Yet nonetheless, it doesn't matter what the odds are. If God's in favor of it, the odds won't matter. And so the Jewish state, against all odds, with no arms hardly at all, defeat all these Arab countries. And here we are 70 years later. Again, the Bible predicted that they would return. Didn't tell us when, just said that they would. And again, the precedent comes back to the whole literal thing. 
You go back, that, we, we're now 70 years in the Jewish state, right? 70 years Jews, Jews have been back in Israel, okay? And, and under great duress, nonetheless, they're still there. 70 years they've been there. You go back 100 years and you listen to most Bible commentators, and I mean good guys too, not knuckleheads. I'm talking about guys who otherwise in the scriptures hit it pretty well. Most of them did not believe that Israel would ever literally return to the land 100 years ago. So 30 years later, they were proven wrong. Now, you won't hear anybody comment on that now because 70 years, obviously, of evidence that says, the Patronus evidence says, nonetheless, they're in there. So everybody says, oh, yeah, we knew that all along. Well, go back to these great Bible scholars, otherwise great. And most of them said it wouldn't be literal. So, again, if you're a betting man or woman, I don't re recommend this, but if you're betting on anything, when it comes to scriptural fulfillment, bet on the literal. Bet on it. And especially, you know, if you just decide beforehand, especially before you get to tough passages like we're going to be looking at today, uh, you're going to be better off. So, so, so first of all, literally, literally, Israel returned to the land. The next literal event to come is the coming of the false Christ. We call him the Antichrist. This guy's coming. The way we're going to know who he is is not because he's wicked, per se. I know every time we get a Hitler or a Saddam Hussein or a one of these other guys come up, could he be the Antichrist? And I would say, yes, he could be, or they could be, per se, but we don't know it based upon their wickedness as much as we know it based from the scriptures, Daniel 9, that whoever this guy is, he's going to make a covenant with Israel for seven years. When you see a guy do that, that's your man. This literal person is coming to earth, or he's going to be born on earth, and he's going to make a covenant with Israel. The scripture tells us that after halfway through that seven-year period, he's going to break that covenant with Israel. He's going to declare himself as God. He's going to say, I'm Jesus. When we think of the word antichrist, you think that's against Jesus. No, he's not against Jesus. He's in favor of Jesus because he thinks he is Jesus. He wants the whole world to believe that. He's going to enforce that because now he's the one world leader. He's going to enforce it with all the power and all the armies of the world because he's going to have control over all those things. And, of course, he's going to go and try to set himself his image up. He's going to successfully do this. His image up in Jerusalem as being God in the temple that the Jews are yet to build but will build. He's going to set himself up at that. Of course, the Jews are going to have a massive problem with that. But the, the problem that it is is they're going to rebel against the one world ruler who has all the armies and all the power. So it got a little bit of Israel against the whole world. And that brings us up to speed as to where we are right now. They're coming. Again, Zechariah 12. We're in Zechariah 14. It's predicted here in the scriptures. I'm going, God speaking here, to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all surrounding peoples reeling. It's already there. Already there. Travel with us to Israel and travel into any other country and listen to anyone's conversation in those countries. I'm talking about Egypt or I've been to Jordan, I've been to Egypt, I've not been into Lebanon. But listen to the conversation of those people with regards to the Jewish people. I can't explain to you the hatred they have. You've been around prejudice. You've been around hatred. You may have been the recipient of it or the perpetrator of it or whatever. And we talk about prejudice all the time and racism all the time in this country. You have no idea. You have no idea what it's like to be a Jew. Go to the Middle East and be hated the way they're hated. It's, it's indescribable. There's no way to explain it. So there, this is, that part's already happening. And it goes that on that day when how many nations? All the nations, which includes which one? This one. Mexico. Canada, South America, Africa, Europe, Russia. We always think the Russians are going to invade Europe. The Bible does predict that. But they're not going to be by themselves. Australia. How much is all? Maybe God didn't. Oh, well, God wasn't informed enough to know what all was back 480 years before Jesus. Guys, please. 
He's God. When he says all, that's what it is. All nations of the earth are gathered against her. Wow, so that's what you're looking for. You're looking for a one-word ruler. You're looking for a seven-year covenant. You're looking for them to rebel against that seven-year covenant, the Jews as he breaks that covenant, and then for all the nations to gather against her. So this tiny little nation, all the armies gathered. I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. So, so when that happens, God's going to intervene. It tells us again in chapter 12, verse 9. On that day, I will set up to destroy how many of the nations? All of them. Like I said, the end of human history. The end of human history. Again, not, not the end of human beings, but the end of humanity as an influence on planet Earth. It's going to cease. It's coming. Bible, this is not just one place. It's over and over again. Again, it's just a matter of do you, do you believe the Bible, do you not, really? It's not a matter why the Bible says it, because it's very clear on that. So, so the details of this intervention that God predicts here in chapter 12 is, is laid out for us here as a subject uh, of chapter 14. So it's called the day of the Lord. And the reason why we call it that, because it's called that many places. But notice how it introduces himself in verse, verse 1 of chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. It's his day. Now you ever say, back in my day, we did this. Back in their day, back in my father's day, back in my mother's day, back in I don't know whatever day. What does that mean? Well, it's sort of a figurative thing, speaking of an era of time. Well, God, listen, has never had his day, as far as earth is concerned. He's going to have it. What would that be like? Well, just the, 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 I guess the, the asking that question, you started down the venture of how things are going to change. So behold, a day is coming for the Lord, and you might want to underline that because everything after this for a while is going to sound like it's not for the Lord. It's like the Antichrist and all his armies are going to win here. At least initially they do. A day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations. There we have it again. How many is all? It's all of them. I hate to say that our nation, this nation, is going to turn its back on Israel. Guys, it already is. Look at the news. You think we're wholehearted supporters of Israel? We're not. Some of us are. But it's not, it's not all of us anymore. That it ever was all of us. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be capped. Notice, it predicts that he's, the, this guy's going to be successful, at least initially. The city will be captured, houses plundered, women ravished, half the city exiled. The rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So there is some kind of reprieve there. Nonetheless, these nations are, are doing what is not normally done. But normally, I don't know when the last time you sacked a city was, but if you'll recall, you march in, you kill, you conquer, you pillage, you get all the good stuff, and you go back to wherever you're from, right? That's the way it's ran. That's historically the way it's ran. They're not doing that. They're, they're killed, they destroy, they pillage, and they're dividing the plunder right there in the middle of the city. They're just staying there. They're not leaving, and there's a reason for that. Because, hear me, hear me on this one, when you conquered Israel... I should say, when you conquered Jerusalem, you've done it. Because there is nothing like Jerusalem. You conquer New York, you conquer Mexico City, you conquer, I don't know, Moscow, Berlin, uh, Baghdad. You've done something, but there are others of those. There are other Parises and New Yorks and Mexico Cities. There are other places of populations that I'm not saying these are insignificant places, but there's other places. But when you conquer Jerusalem, you've done it. That's it. There's nothing past that. It's the pinnacle of pinnacles. It's a relatively small city compared to these, but it's something else because you find out, and, and historically it's been true. A ask yourself the question, Muslims invaded and in fact they haven't left Jerusalem since about 580 A.D. 
of all the other places they controlled, and you name them, I mean, Beirut, Cairo, Istanbul, uh, uh, Baghdad, uh, um, Tehran, I mean, all these places they have flowed in and out of, they've stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is it. It's the it of all things. They will give and take these other, na other countries and other cities, but they will not give and take Jerusalem. They will die to keep Jerusalem. They have been. That's, that's the news. They're killing themselves to keep this city because when you conquer Jerusalem, you've done it. And, and it, it looks as if in here, and we remind ourselves, as if it's all over in the kingdom of Antichrist is one. But in fact, again, what does it say at the first verse? This is the Lord's day. It says in, chapter, it says in verse 2, it is the Lord who gathered these nations. He's the one that's behind all this. He's the one. Look, look I mean, it, even though it's demonic, uh, this whole process, these nations gathering to fight against Israel, uh, they are demonic spirits that perform signs, it says in Revelation. They will go out to the kings of the whole world. How much of the world? And it says it all over the place. It's going to be everybody. It's going to be all the armies. He said it's unimaginable. You want to write this off as not literal. Please don't do that. It's a mistake. To, to gather them for battle in the great day of, it's, it sounds like it's the Antichrist battle, so I'm getting all the armies of the world together and I'm the Antichrist. It sounds like it's my day, doesn't it? It's not. God's day. They gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's where we get that name from, and you hear the quote-unquote battle of Armageddon, and that phrase is not in your Bible. It's just a gathering place. The battle, battle actually is over the whole land of Israel, in particular the city of Jerusalem. It says it here, it says it other places, it never says there's a battle in Armageddon, as a matter of fact. It's just a gathering place, it's a beautiful valley in Israel that's there today, it's 100 miles north of Jerusalem. So, so even though it looks like the Antichrist is winning, it's not his day. Whose day is it? It's the Lord's day, right? The Lord's day refers to just one day, not just one day, but a period of time. Like I said, we've said before, back in my day, we're referring to a 24-hour period of your life? No. Back in my dad's day, is that like a one, I don't know, a 24-hour period in his life? No. He's speaking of an era, of a position of influence, of a place where stuff was significant, if you will. Uh, uh, today we'll say it's the day of liberalism or it's the day of conservatism or it's the day of space travel. Is that also referring to a 24-hour day? It's the, the day of nuclear uh, armament or whatever. It's not with the God that it was only 24 hours, right? But it's been a long time. The day has been a long time. The same is true of the day of the Lord, not talking about 24-hour period. You're talking about an extensive line of influence. And, and here's Here's an important thing to get. And are you ready? I hope you wake up. I know it's kind of hot in here. But wake up for just a second because I want you to hear this. The day of the Lord in the scriptures is set over against in juxtaposition to the day of man. Man has had his day, right? 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, however many thousands of years that we have been in influence. And what have we accomplished? Not nothing. We've accomplished less than nothing. We've destroyed this place. We've wrecked society, we've wrecked our lives, we've wrecked the culture, we've wrecked the environment, we've wrecked everything. We have had our day. It's going to come to an end, and God's going to have his day. What will that be like? Where we don't have a vote anymore, no more democracy, no more decisions over who, what, how, we have, and no, that all is coming to an end, and it's going to be God and him alone. And like I said, Zechariah 14 is going to make that very clear to us. So the turning of tide, the turning of tide here starts in verse 3. So it looks like up until verse 3, the Antichrist and his kings are winning. 
Look at verse 3. Then, when is then? Well, then, pay attention. When they've gathered all the armies into Jerusalem and they've conquered what it seems and it looks like they've won and then Israel's great uh, extremity becomes God's great opportunity to intervene, then, that's when then is. Whatever then is, that's the then. The Lord will go forth, notice, and fight against those nations. How many nations? It's all of them. As when he fights on the day of battle. So he's going to roll up his sleeves and he's going to start making hay while the sun is shining to be sure. So they've gathered the armies right. These demons have gathered them up. They're fighting against Jerusalem. They're winning. Everything looks good for the Antichrist. And then, 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 then this happens. Keep looking on the screen. Find the button here. Then that happens. So they're winning. They're pillaging. They're dividing the spoil. And then from heaven, as John says, I saw heaven standing open. Then before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Speaking of Jesus, I'll just give you that. With justice he judges and wages war. Is that part of your theology that Jesus is a warrior? Is that a part of your theology? Well, let me help you with your theology. God has called, I don't know how many numerous times in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Like he's got some kind of cooking school where they teach you how to put the plates and the napkins right? Is that what it's talking about? Hosts and hostesses, is that what it means? No. It's an old way of saying armies. We need to interpret it. We really do. The Lord of hosts, how many times is that in the Old Testament? I mean, tremendous number of times. You need to write, scratch host off and write armies because it's going to mean what it's supposed to mean to you if you read it that way. He's Lord of armies, not one army, multiple. So it's not surprising if we're an Old Testament scholar that he wages war because that's what armies do, right? So he comes to wage war, right? The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, wide and clean. So boom, the Antichrist comes. He looks like everything's going to good, and the heavens split open. And uh, so here we go, and that's going to be followed with this from Revelation 6. The heavens receded. There you go, splitting open. Here he comes, like a scroll. By the way, where's he coming from? Up there. To where? Down here. So it's going to be up there, coming down here. Everybody's going to see it. Sky recedes like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island is going to be earth-shaking, removed from its place, and then the kings of the earth. And so we got literal earth and literal princes and literal generals and literal rich and mighty and everyone else. Why can't it be a literal heaven that rolls up like a literal scroll? See what I'm saying? We, we, want, to, we want to shift back and forth because it doesn't fit into what we naturally think of things. And like I said, you need to hold, drop the whole natural thing when it talks about supernatural. You just need to drop it. It's a foolish approach. And the kings of the earth, and the princes, and the generals, and the rich, and the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, apparently, who's gathered against Israel, hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains. And it says, it goes on to say, that they cry to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, they call Jesus the Lamb. Wow. Oh, wow. So, so first the invasion of the Antichrist, then the invasion from heaven, then they're hiding themselves, right? And then we pick it up in verse 4. You're doing so well. And in that day, what day is that? When God invades. His feet. God has feet? Yep, he does. Jesus had feet. They ran nails through him. He's God. His feet were standing on the Mount of Olives, by the way, when he left to go back to heaven. And so his feet come back. He, the same place he left from, the same place he comes down to. 
And we're going to see that in just a second. It's predicted in the New Testament. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem to the east. It's, by the way, a mountain. A mountain is sort of a strong statement here. You have the mountain. It's kind of like a big hill. The bigger hills in the hill country are rival anything in Israel as far as mountains go. Uh, when you think of mountains, don't think of, like, I don't know, Pikes Peak or something like that, snow-capped stuff. They don't have any of that. So this mountain, it says, which is the Mount of Olives, so it's kind of a small spot. And feet are kind of a localized thing, aren't they? They're just one part of his body. We've got a localized mountain, a localized part of his body. I'm going to stand in a localized spot. And split the mountain, it says, from east to west. So the mountain runs north to south. So splitting it east to west puts it right in the middle. And it says part heads to the north and the other part heads toward the south. And you, speaking of the Jews that are embattled in the city of Jerusalem, will flee by the valley of my mountains, he says. For the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake, referring to a historical event in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Like I said, just exactly like we read in Revelation. So it's all that then thing happening here. So first this, then that. Then the survivors are going to escape through this mountain, this valley that God creates through the middle of this mountain that's always historically been there. His return is not quite like his first one, was it? So Jesus comes the first time, and he's born in a manger, laid in a stable. I mean, born in a stable, laid in a manger. And they've got to wake up some shepherds so they don't miss it. Well, I'm not thinking that anybody's going to have to be woke up to be told what this is going to happen. This is going to be global. This is going to be, I mean obvious. In fact, that's what Jesus says. He says, like the lightning that flashes in the east and is also visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Nobody's going to have to tell you. It's going to be evident. So, so and again, this, this whole landing on the Mount of Olives is predicted in the New Testament, Acts chapter 1. Stick with me, I know. Come on. I know it's hot. I'm hotter than you. So, Jesus dies, buries, and resurrects on the third day, right? Forty days, more or less, he's with his disciples. At the end of those 40 days, he ascends into heaven from the Mount of Olives. When he does, the disciples are standing there looking into heaven, saying, where'd he go? And next to them is standing these two angels. One of them says to the disciples these words, why do you stand here looking into heaven? You got your marching orders? Go out and do it. This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In the same way, what does that mean? Well, we can learn from Zechariah, that means in every way. In other words, if we could put the words in the angel's mouths, you saw him leave physically, personally, bodily, visibly, literally. Likewise, he will return to the same spot, physically, personally, bodily, visibly, literally. Right? We can read that safely. So it's going to be a unique day. Keep reading here, verse 6. Unique day, as if it wasn't already. It's going to call itself unique right here. It will come about in that day... That there will be no light or luminaries, so cancel out the sun, the stars, the moon. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. How does that work? I am at the foggiest idea. <laughs> Not the foggiest. I just let it say what it says. But it will come about that at evening time there will be light, and it will come about in that day that living waters will flow from Jerusalem half toward the eastern sea, read that, the Dead Sea, and half toward the Western Sea, read that, the Mediterranean, and it will be the same year-round, summer and winter, it says. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Maybe the biggest statement in the whole book of Zechariah. The Lord will be king over all the earth. He is currently king, right? He's always been king. He's just not reigning as king, because if he was, there'd be a lot of dead people. 
there'd be a lot of people not with us. Because if he comes and exacts righteousness in the midst of wickedness, guess what happens? You turn on the light in the midst of darkness, what happens to the darkness? So he's not currently doing that, but he will do that. He will become his king over all the earth, and in that day the Lord will be the only one. He's named the only one. We're headed toward a monarchy, not a democracy. No split parties here. One world religion. Nobody's opinion is going to matter but his. It's going to be a great day. You may not like it. You've got yourself a problem then. Verse 10, and the land will be changed. So it's not just a spiritual change. It's also a physical change topographically. Speaking of the land of Israel, from Geba to Ramon, from the north all the way to the south, from Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site. So it's this hilly, mountainous land. Everything's going to go flat except for Jerusalem. It's going to be raised up. And it gives the descriptions of Jerusalem, the exact dimensions of it. Benjamin Gate, as far as the place of the first gate, the corner gate, the tower gate, and Hannah Nail on the king's wine press. And the people will live in it, and there will be no more curse, and for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Lots of stuff is going to change. Jerusalem is certainly not a secure place. Well, I should say it is. But they have to maintain the security. God's going to make it completely secure. Not going to have to worry about a thing. So, so it's going to be a unique day. It's going to be a disastrous day. Keep reading in verse 12. Disastrous day. Notice. Now this is, this is the PG-13 part. This is the plague which the Lord will strike all the people. So like I said, again, every part in here we have different issues with our theology that we want to, when we come up against Scripture, we say, I, I don't believe God's that way. And like I said, again, when, when Scripture disagrees with the way I believe or the way I've been taught or the way I think, I need to change, not the Scriptures. So if it says God's a certain way that disagrees with the way you think, just like I said, get over it, please. Now this is, will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people. Like I said, our tendency is to think God loves everybody and he won't kill anybody. And mm, you're going to have a hard time proving that one. People who have gone to war against Jerusalem, all of them, it says their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet. And their eyes will rot in their sockets. And their tongues will rot in their mouths. So literal mouths, literal feet, literal eyeballs. These are all literal people coming against a literal city. And God's going to literally send a plague on them. So like I said, PG-13, some rough stuff here. But, but nonetheless, if you want to make it say anything other than literal, you're going to have a problem with it. And maybe the best, the best way to explain what happens here is what actually says over here back to Revelation 19. So Jesus comes riding on a white horse, the armies of heaven falling with him. Out of his mouth, notice, out of the mouth of Jesus, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So that's a funny place to carry a sword. I don't know about y'all, but I'm thinking on my belt would be a better place. But he's got it in his mouth, okay? He, this is quoting from Psalm 2, he will rule them with iron scepter, and the rest, that is all the gathered nations, all the armies, will be killed with the sword coming out, not spanked, not put on probation. Sword's not for those things. You kill with it. That's what he's going to do. With the sword that's coming out of his mouth, the rider, the horse, the birds gorge themselves. So we have a literal people dying in a literal way, and Jesus literally coming and killing them, right? So, but there's one thing here that's not literal. Now, wait a minute, preacher, you've been preaching literal, 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 literal. Let it be literal. Let it be, you know, it is. It always is. Unless the Bible tells you differently. My, my issue with whole literal and figurative and all this stuff is that if you and I are deciding when it's literal and when it's figurative, we're in big trouble. I mean, if the Bible is dependent upon what's running around between our ears, I don't know about you, but I'm wrecking my life pretty well. 
You reckon yours? I have a hard time. I'm having a hard time living. I always have. I, I don't think it's going to ever change. When it's gone well, it's gone with the Lord, right? Same is true with you. Right? So God's going to trust this very puny mind with the decisions of the direction of the way the Scripture goes? No. He's not going to do that. He's going to tell you how it's going to go. It's going to go left. It's going to go right. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. And your puny minds and mine too need to take it. Just say, okay. So, so here's what happens. So if it says it's literal, then it's literal. If it gives us some other way out, like a non-literal interpretation, which is this case, then, then we can say, okay. Here, here's what I'm saying. I don't think this sword is literal, and I think of it because the Scripture's already given us a way out. Here's what it says about the, the Scriptures, the Word of God. that the, It's the sword of the Spirit, according to Ephesians 6. So I got a sword coming out of his mouth. I don't, where do you speak from? Bottom of your feet? When you talk, where does the word come from? From your mouth, right? Where is this sword coming from? So when God speaks, where do the words come from? Follow me now? So if it says the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, then I'm thinking that's what this is referring to. It also says in, Ephesians, in Hebrews 4.12 that, that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. Again, where does his words come from? It comes from his mouth. So this is a figurative representation of words being spoken. So now, now we can make sense of this thing. So he's coming from heaven, riding on a white horse. There's no reason to take those things anything but literal because it doesn't give us an option to do that. But it does give us an option with regards to the sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, they, people try to paint pictures of Jesus as he descends on this horse, and they got this big double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And I'm always thinking, that's not accurate. It's actually speaking of his words. What did God do with his words? He created all that there is. It says he spoke them into being in six consecutive 24-hour days. So while I'm thinking if he can do that in six consecutive 24-hour days, that he can unspeak those things as well. Don't you? So thus, the, if you will, for lack of a better way to explain it, the melting here of these human beings as God unspeaks their existence in verse 12. So we're, we're, we're getting there. I know. Come on. Come on, slap yourself a little bit. It's going to be a disastrous day for some. It's going to be a holy day. Uh, look at verse 16. So then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations, so there's some going to live, that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, which will be in Jerusalem. And the Lord of hosts to celebrate the feast of booze. So there's going to be this whole change of culture, a whole change of religion. They're all headed to Jerusalem. And then, and then notice verse 20 and 21, this holiness. And then in that day there will be inscribed on the bells of horses, holy to the Lord. That may not be a shocker to you, but any Jew reading this would say, oh, my, it knows the Bible. Oh, my goodness, you can't say that. Yeah, you can. There's only one place ever otherwise in the Bible that holiness to the Lord has ever been inscribed on anything, and it was on the headdress of the high priest because he was special. And it's only when he performed special, special tasks. So he's a special guy with a special job on a special day. Only that day could he wear this headdress. So it's very unique. It didn't apply to anything. So for a biblical Jew, when they look at this and say, holy to the Lord is going to be inscribed on the bells of horses? That's common. But it speaks of this, this pervasive holiness. This un, uh, I mean, on every level, there's going to be holiness, completeness, wholeness. This, this holiness is going to be on everything, on every common thing as well as every, every non-common thing. Keep reading. On the cooking pots, it says, in the Lord's house, it will be like the bowls that were before the altar. And every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts. It's unthinkable. Unless things change, and they are. 
And all who sacrifice will come and take them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite. What is that? In the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. A couple more things will be done. Even the common things become holy. Everything today in our society, down to the least common things, most common things are unholy. Let's talk about the money in your pocket for just a second. Where'd you get it? You changed the 20 yesterday because you were at stripes, right? Now you got a five and I don't know, six ones with you. Who had those fives and six ones prior to your handling of them? Only the Lord knows, right? I mean, if we did a DNA profile on the cash in your pocket, what would we come up with? They could do that, you know. Now your DNA profile's on it because you touched it with your grimy little hands. So, so, and so it's got a DNA profiles. It's got bacteria of who knows what kinds. But here's the bigger question. Not, you can spray it with Lysol and get rid of all that stuff. But here's the big question. What was that money used for last week? Two months ago, two years ago, ten years ago. Or in the time in between there, passing into your hands now, holy people, right? Godly people, honoring God with it, right? I'm telling you what to do. Right? Amen, preacher, that's what we're going to do with it. All right, but prior to this, people not listening to good preaching or studying the Bible had the same hands on the same money, what they do with it. See, that's some nasty stuff you hold in there. That's been exchanged for all kinds of wickedness. Who knows? Who knows? Like I said, the only, only the Lord knows. And the chances are running through a society that's corrupted the way ours is that it's been used for some awful stuff. You need to have rubber gloves on messing with that. It's ugly. So, so when, it, it, when it speaks of these common things here, I mean, down to the commonness of a bell on a horse, for crying out loud, is going to be holy. It's going to be pure. It's going to be a day like you've never and me have ever seen. We've never seen anything like this. We, we live in a sort of assumed level of germs and evilness and corruption, and we just kind of tolerate it. I think God gives us kind of the ability to kind of overlook things. Otherwise, I think we would implode. I mean, it's just so horrible. There's coming a day in which none of that would be true. It's going to be perfect. People will be holy. Notice the end of verse 21. There will be no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts all day. What is that? I don't know about y'all, but where I live, over in Port Isabel, the Canaanites are tearing stuff up over there. They're horrible over there. If we could just get rid of them. Is that same where you live? It really is. You know, in, a, in a figurative way, it is. See, uh, there are no more Canaanites alive today than there were in the time Zechariah writes this. See, Zechariah writes this 600 years, maybe 1,000 years. The last Canaanite breathed his last. Canaanites, God got rid of them. The reason why is because they were very evil people, very corrupt, turning their back on God. Every chance God gave them, they just simply waved it off. And so their name became a byword for people that live that way. It's not just Canaanites that act that way, right? It's Texans that act that way, Oklahomans that act that way, Mexicans act that way. All of us act that way. Given, given the, an, enough separation from God, enough turning our back on him, we're all, if you will, Canaanites. Well, there's going to come a day in which none of those kind of people are going to be here anymore. What will that be like? Here, here's some follow-up questions just real quick for you. What, what would happen if justice was truly served today? I mean, really served. Like the people who did the stuff really got what was coming to them. And I mean, we did it today. Well, we would empty Washington, in my opinion. <laughs> Just empty that whole place. And by the way, most government places, I really think we would. 
It's a, it's a place to aggregate evil, is it not? Because the Satan knows that you control people from control centers, and so it naturally, we should naturally assume that evil people would migrate to places like that. Uh, if, if, if you, what if people and governments and movements were truly held accountable for the stuff that they said and they did? And I mean, we got it done in a week. What would that be like? Would there not be some rarefied air to breathe? Unimaginable, right? Unbelievable. I mean, we cringe when people go to trial, don't we? Because evil often is acquitted, unfortunately, in our imperfect society. And the opposite is true. Innocent people are also found guilty. And so we cringe both ways. But what if, what if the sovereign God who judges and sees all things judges all cases from here on? How would it change? And justice was carried out, like I said, immediately. What would it be like? I read a guy who was explaining this, and, and he, somebody was asking the question about his opinion, and I thought he had a good answer to this. And he said, what would it be like? He says, he says, tell me something. When's the best time of year where you're from? I said, well, undoubtedly Christmas. But it really is. You think about it. Christmas is the best time. I mean, it, of all that we have going on that we're against in our culture, Christmas is, is the time where even the worst of us are benevolent and, and kind and, and thoughtful toward others and and, um, you know, it, it's a time of generosity, it's a time of goodwill, it's a, it's a time of kindness, and it's, it's highlighted that time of year, basically December, really as we get closer to Christmas. And you know the reason why that is, right? It's because even though he's marginalized and he's uh, commercialized, Jesus is exalted during that time, maybe more than any other time. Even, even atheists don't really have a problem with a baby Jesus in, in a manger trying to demonstrate God's love. They don't believe it, but at least it's, it's it, to them, it's at least something that, 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 that rings true in some, in some ways with them. The, the world is that way. Western culture is that way. What, what, if, what if we had Christmas year-round? What if, what if Christ was, like I said, he's marginalized and commercialized at Christmas time, and it's just a brief window that we get of, of breath. But what if no longer marginalized, no longer commercialized, he becomes it, year-round. Well, now you're starting to understand what the millennial kingdom of Christ is going to be like. It's just a glimpse, but you're, you're starting, I believe, I believe if you can imagine this, the messianic kingdom of Christ, you're starting to see what this is like. What does it mean for people to be holy and for things to be holy? We really don't know. We've never been there. We have a glimpse of it, even in our own lives. We can't control our own passions and our own issues. If there's going to come a day in which it's going to be enforced, it's going to be enforced on the internally, God's people, it's going to be forced externally in the world and the governments that are going to be here, they're all going to answer to him. And he's going to hold sway over them. What would that be like? It's going to be a great day. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to ask you, please, to bow your heads, close your eyes with me. Thank you so much for your patience. And we're going to come to an end here by an offering you an invitation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're in control. I know we don't fully understand all these things, and many things are hard to say. How could this be literal? But, Lord, we're going to keep them literal until you do something different. God, we trust you. We trust you that you have good intentions, that you're reaching out benevolently towards people. Uh, as we sang earlier, you wrestle with the sinner's heart. So, God, I pray that you would continue to wrestle with us and that we would let you win and let you be king over us, Lord, even as we look forward to the day in which you're going to be king over everything. We ask you, God, to be king today in our lives. Be exalted in our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.